I'm Sean McCormick, and this is Optimal Performance. Explicitly psilocybin is not contraindicated with almost every psychiatric medication, which means that, again, under the care and supervision, someone can start to wean off, and microdosing can often help support that weaning off process. It can help to minimize or mitigate uh, withdrawal symptoms. Right? How do we master this sort of meta skill of working with psychedelic substances to facilitate the healing and transformation uh, that we want to see? in our lives. This sort of experience of gnosis is antithetical to the onward march of the machine. Whoa, right? That's a big one. So that, everyone, is Paul Austin. He is a 21st century pioneer who has long advocated for the responsible use of psychedelics for healing, leadership, and personal transformation. He's been in Rolling Stones, New York Times, WebMD, and this is his third appearance, The Trifecta. You can go back to episodes 166, or 324 to hear more of Paul and how we like to talk about microdosing, about psychedelics and their practical use in our society. In this episode, we talk a lot about what psychedelic purposes are. We talk about weaning off medications with psychedelic mushrooms. We talk about recovering from addiction. We talk about this idea of mastering psychedelic use. And in fact, that is the title of his most recent book that came out in November called Mastering Microdosing, How to Use Subperceptual Psychedelics to Heal Trauma, Improve Performance, and Transform Your Life. Obviously, I'm most interested in improving performance, and that's why he's here. And this is a really cool conversation. We dive right into it. It's just going to pick up right after I stop talking. I hope that you enjoy this episode. You can find Paul at thethirdwave.co. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Please enjoy this really cool conversation with my friend and yours, Paul Austin from Third Wave. I don't know if it's paired with other sort of gestalt therapies or promptings or anything like that. You know, in my experience with neurofeedback, it was, you know, it was spread out over six months. I think I did a total of 15 sessions. Oh, wow. And, okay. and uh, so I did a whole bunch of it, which was, which was great, but I didn't really have anything that I was working on. Right. So it wasn't like brain injury. There was no addiction. There wasn't like really heavy stuff I was dealing with. And I think that if I, if that was the case and I was like really trying to work on something, it may have been more effective or no, more noticeable for me, but it's an interesting point. Cause you like, it's a parallel to psychedelics, right? Because if you go into a psychedelic experience or let's say a microdosing protocol and you don't have an intention necessarily, and you're just like, I'm going to do this and see what happens, mm -hmm. but there's no sort of outcome that I'm actually looking to create, then I think inevitably it will be a less powerful experience than if you're really clear and you have a clear intention behind what it is that you're doing. So it's probably less so the instrument and it was more so just like for you is more trial and error and experimentation right rather than being like okay i have this specific clear goal and intention in mind and i want to utilize neuro as a stepping stone to get there yeah um because even that's what with with uh, the intensives that we were talking about right before we went on air um you know drew pearson who's the practitioner he's a phenomenal technician so he knows where to put the places he knows precisely how to kind of tune it and then he's paired with uh, Amy, who's my who's my partner, my girlfriend. And Amy's like a world class coach, right? So Amy does all the coaching around it. Drew's the practitioner and the technician, and the combination of those two, I think, is where the magic. If you have just coaching mm. without someone who can really fine tune it, then it won't be nearly as effective. And if you only have the technical, without sort of like the inspiration or the clarity or the intentionality, then you know it's it's just not going to be quite well, as well. Like with so many other things that are. Because obviously there's parallels between psychedelics, um, microdosing, biohacking. There's there, they can do a lot of different things, right? It's like using this potentiator to to create change. And to your point, unless you're driving towards something, like intention can, is such a broad term. You know, it can be like I want to have a better relationship, a better relationship with my spouse. Cool. Uh, I want to start a company. Cool. Like that a lot of people lack that guidance. They don't have that guidance. They don't have the tools to be able to push themselves and be accountable to themselves to grow in that way. And if you don't have that aspect, then yeah, a, a, a microdosing protocol um, could be illuminating and interesting and, and help you be a better thinker and a more positive person or more creative person. But it's like, well, it's like, it's like a, like a macro dose too. It's like, okay, you, you got your coconut opened 
and you see the world in a different way. You see yourself in a different way, but now what? And that now what, that now what question is everything, especially for a coach like myself and, and, and with you and your experiences, like, well, now what are you going to do? You know, what's, what, what's the outcome? What are you pushing towards? What's the result? And and it, and that doesn't mean to over-index into that because part of the healing is in the journey. Part of the healing is in the experience. Part of the healing is in you know the the transcendence or you know the the mood lift or having more energy. Certainly, but um, the way that we as humans are wired is we're 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 wired for we're wired for the now what mm-hmm. right? It's what makes us human. It's the payoff. Uh, biologically, evolutionarily, physiologically, we, we, we need that because that, that allows our psyche to know it was worth all of that energy and effort that you put in. Right. Right. And if it's not there, then it's like, you know, I know, I know plenty of people who have gone through microdosing protocols and they maybe did a little bit here and there, but there was really very little intention around the protocol. And at the end of it, they go, yes, yeah, like interesting. And, you know, I noticed a little thing here and there, but have I really substantially changed as a person? Not so much. And I think the kicker, the 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 core indicator of that is, well, how much time did you actually spend preparing and cultivating intention and, and really looking at this as an opportunity to grow rather than just say, I'm going to take a little bit and see see what happens. Yeah, right. What, what do you think is is some of the more common intentions that people have with microdosing? So a lot of this is it's like a spectrum, right? where we can go from healing sickness to transforming our sense of self Mm. right now caveat i don't think microdosing is necessarily great for catalytic transformation Uh, i think that's really what we look at high doses for ayahuasca and 5-meo and high doses of psilocybin right that's the that's a huge sort of shift phenomenal, fundamental shift in, in a sense of self, but microdosing can still be utilized in those in sort of the, the process of growth, evolution, the betterment of well people, leadership, performance, growth, whatever it is. So if I had to break it down, let's, I would say I'd break it down into like three buckets, right? First of all, you have a lot of the, you know, a lot of people who are on Prozac and Zoloft, they're on benzodiazepines, they're on Adderall, they're on Ritalin, they're on these conventional psychiatric medications. They they know they aren't working all that well. Maybe they've lost their efficacy. Maybe they're overly addictive. Uh, maybe they're they're causing you know other sort of second order effects like you know they can't get an erection or they have you know no you know their mood is totally shit or. Um, you know, anhedonia, life just feels like it's fucking gray all the time. So that is definitely like a significant group of people who are microdosing is they're like, I'm sick of this bullshit. I've heard microdosing can really help. I've learned a little bit about why it's so fundamentally different than, than psychiatric conventional medications, which we can go into. I think that would be sort of illuminating Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about how they compare to SSRIs or ADHD medication. And they're looking at a first weaning off these psychiatric medications, sometimes with the help of, of microdosing. And then once they're weaned off to actually utilize microdosing on a somewhat regular basis and, and caveat disclaimer, if, you know, we have someone who's listening to this, who's interested in that process, definitely do this under the supervision of a medical professional, a psychiatrist, a nurse, right? It's really important that you have someone there who can support you because weaning off, especially like benzodiazepines and certain and certain SSRIs can be pretty, pretty nasty, hmm. um, pretty nasty. So that's, I would say the, the first and, and, and probably one of the foremost use cases. And, and the beauty of that is psilocybin is not contraindicated with almost every psychiatric medication. Hmm. That's not the case for MDMA. That's not the case for ayahuasca. Um, so I, I really want to be clear that this is not every psychedelic. This is explicitly psilocybin is not contraindicated with almost every psychiatric medication. I think the exception to that is lithium. So if someone is taking lithium, they should not be taking psilocybin, which means that again, under the care and supervision of ideally a medical professional, um, someone can start to wean off and microdosing can often help support that weaning off process. It can help to minimize or mitigate uh, withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can help to improve mood and energy as someone is weaning off of these. And there's a phenomenal resource that I'll drop in here just for all the listeners called Spirit Pharmacist. 
Hmm. And Spirit Pharmacist is just a blog. It's a website. It's like a membership group, a membership platform where you can pay a small amount per month and get access to all of the information and details around how your medication might overlap with microdoses. And and the guy there, Ben Malcolm, who's a pharmacist, will even help with email support, guide some people off of this. So I just tell folks in case they're interested. So first use case is that. The second new case I would say is, is, um, you know, the, the, the classic stories that we've heard in the media for a long time, you know, Silicon Valley software engineers using microdosing, uh, LSD to increase productivity. So really looking at it from a performance angle, uh, looking at it in terms of how it can help with flow, how it can help with creativity, how it can help with, uh, mood energy, uh, you know, could be sex life. There's lots of ways where people go, okay, like, I'm I'm back to baseline. I feel good, but there are, there are different, you know, life is vast and grand and I want to explore it in all of its complexities. So let's microdose a little bit to see how it can help with this or that or that. And I'd say that's another significant group. It's entrepreneurs, it's um it's athletes, it's people who are just interested in personal development and performance and they're looking at um microdosing to help with that process. Now, when it comes to that process, and we can talk a little bit more about this, LSD is slightly different than psilocybin. So a lot of people who are interested in more of the performance angle, uh, like flow, creativity, productivity, LSD is going to be a better tool for that because it's more dopaminergenic. So more dopamine with LSD means better focus, better motivation, more attention. Um, and then the, the sort of third and final group of people, I would say, are, are those who are more interested in it from like, a, let's say, a spiritual practice hmm. um they're they're really interested in like engaging with uh different types of plant medicines to have a relationship with that plant medicine they may have a ritual uh that they utilize with microdosing um it's a way for them to you know touch back and they could be very sensitive people and empaths or who are very open who only need a little bit to really kind of touch into that space and i would say that's sort of like the third main group or hmm. demographic who's using it Today's episode is brought to you by Analemma. Everybody knows that we're 70% water in body mass. Most people don't know that we're 99% water on a molecular level. And that's why the quality, the composition, and the shape of the water that we drink is tremendously influential in our lives. Analemma regenerates, revitalizes, and rejuvenates our body and minds on a cellular level. The water that you drink out of the tap or out of a, a plastic bottle The molecules are chaotic and they move in an irregular manner. And through a simple, simple process, Analema radically changes the state of the water by rearranging those H2O molecules into a liquid crystalline structure. It's super easy. This cool wand, all you do is swirl it in your water and it brings coherence and structure back to this water. You may be familiar with some of the other water structuring devices. This is cheaper, this is more effective, and it's got great science to support it. If you go back to episode 402, you'll hear the episode where I interview Mario Branovich, who is the CEO of Analema Water. They've got a special offer just for you. You might as well use this and enhance the water quality that you have. Go to coherent-water.com and use the code OPP for 10% off. I have already gotten responses from people who have purchased this product and they can tell, they feel that the water actually quenches their thirst. They feel more energized and sharp of mind. That's coherent-water.com and use the code OPP. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I I do I definitely do want to get into how uh, psilocybin microdosing compares to some of these other, um, you know, benzodiazepines and, and SSRIs and, and and the application. In my experience, what I've found is for for folks who are they've heard the, they've seen how to change your mind they've you know maybe they've come across some of your work it's you know it's it's bubbling up it's continuing to become more and more visible in you know in the public square and they are attracted to it because of its the fact that it's one ingredient and it's like oh cool uh, i i might be able to achieve something some shift in my attention some performance optimization and when when people that I'm working with are are, are using microdose specifically psilocybin for microdosing, what they the, the most common thing that I hear is, I I make better choices, <laughs> like I just make better choices, and and that's such a simplification. But if you think about that, if you think about if you made maybe 
20% better choices day to day. Imagine the different areas of your life that that's going to affect the relationship with your spouse, the relationship with your children, your performance at work, the, what you put in your mouth as far as nutrition, motivation to exercise. And when, when people are just making slightly better decisions, and this is both on the microdosing days and on the rest days, they, their, their whole life changes really quickly. And, and one of the more common things that I hear is like, I just get a little bit of a buffer before I make that choice. And, and maybe it's calmness, maybe it's just a little bit more self-reflection, but it's this, this beat. And, and I keep hearing this over and over. I just have an extra beat before I snap at somebody or before I, you know, hit the vape pen or before I, you know, and, and I, I realize that's an oversimplification of it, but that changes everything. That'll change your life in a couple of weeks. If all of a sudden you're like a little bit more motivated to work out, you're a little bit nicer to your, to the people that you live with. And, and I think that, I think that's a profound thing. And the fact that they, a lot of these people that I work with have tried a bunch of different stuff. You know, they've, mm. they've, they've tried, um, you know, they've tried Adderall, they've tried, you know, other sorts of stimulants to, to try to, to, to just to be more in control of their lives. And, um, I, it's, it's exciting to me every time. One, it's like, it's like compound interest, right? That's, that's the way that I think about it. Like in compound interest paired with habit stacking mm. paired with, you know, another, another phrase that I wrote down is reactivity versus responsiveness. So when you, when you have that, that sort of spaciousness, the mindfulness, a lot of people experience a similar thing if they've meditated for 30 days straight, right? They'll go, Oh, wow. Like now that I've meditated for 30 days, I get less triggered. Uh, I'm less in my triggers. Uh, I'm, I'm able to actually make a more autonomous choice. I'm not making choices from a place that is, that is triggering. Uh, and so that, 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 what that does is it creates this sort of virtuous cycle of, of inner trust in that oh, I am capable of making really good choices and decisions for myself. And then those choices and decisions tend to compound because when you start eating healthier, you have more energy. And when you have more energy, then you're more likely to, you know, uh, wake up early. And when you wake up early, you're more likely to meditate more often. And so there's sort of a way in which, um, microdosing can lead to this sort of rippling effect on behavioral change. And part of that is because of, uh, like we talked about compound interest and reactivity versus responsiveness, but a big part of it is also neuroplasticity, mm. right? When, when, when there's a certain level, and this is all, this is especially true for those who may be in their fifties, sixties, seventies, they've been the same way for a very long period of time. There's a certain level of frigidity that is set in, in terms of those neural pathways, and so utilizing something like microdosing or even low, what we could call low doses of psychedelics is going to help them just to slightly shift out of those really ingrained patterns. And in shifting out of those really ingrained patterns, they're all of a sudden going to be able to make choices from a new place and a new perspective. And they won't feel as sort of attached to this old identity, which was keeping them stuck in patterns of behavior that may have not been, been mm. beneficial. So there's a capacity to slightly sort of wiggle out of that, look at things from a new perspective, and then actually start to actively weave new behavioral patterns in because of that neuroplasticity, because the ego is less defensive, the ego is less rigid, it's actually more open to shifts and changes. And so then, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, then we talk about, well, what's the role of a coach in that? What's the role of a therapist in that? What's the role of accountability in that? Because even even though it does help with neuroplasticity and helps with perspective, we still, we as humans have a, have a, an amazing capacity to fool ourselves or an mm -hmm. amazing capacity to bullshit ourselves and tell ourselves lies and all that. So having a coach who is there to support you, who is holding you accountable, who is helping you to set goals can also be centrally important to actually quote unquote, getting the most out of, out of microdosing, out of psychedelic work, out of, you know, any of this stuff as it relates to behavioral change. It's, 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 it's such a key point, it, you know, especially the listeners to this podcast who, you know, by name, optimal performance are type A go-getters, right? Like very active physically, they work hard, they play hard, you know, they take a ton of vitamins and supplements, they are 
they, they don't like to sit still. They like having things to do. They like heading towards something. And those types of people, you know, ENFJs, you know, and the Myers-Briggs, you know, people who are like, you know, the protagonist in the, in the story, those folks are, are usually high motivation, optimistic, you know, have a lot of ingenuity, have a lot of agency. Those are the people who can bullshit themselves the best, right? Those are the people who can, who can talk themselves into or out of positive behavioral changes. And when you introduce, especially a psilocybin microdose, what, what, what I found and what they find is like, oh, I'm, I'm not as good at bullshitting myself. You know, I, I'm not stuck in a groove that, that neuroplasticity element where it's like, oh, I could just think a little bit differently. Like I can just look at the third side of the quarter, right? It's not, it's not heads or tails. It's the edge. And like that, that opens up so much potential so frequently. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's that, it's the new perspective. It's the, the, the new paradigm. It's the, the, be able to look at, you can look at something that you've been looking at for a very long time. And then when you take a microdose or you take a low dose or you take a high dose, you all of a sudden see it in a totally new light. And I think that is one of the huge benefits of, of psychedelics. I, I want to, before we get too far along, I, and, and I yeah. do want to talk a little bit about the, the sort of comparison to, um, you know, benzos and, and SSRIs, but I, I know that you have just recently released a ton of great new content specifically around microdosing. And I, and, and for reference, our first conversation around microdosing was back in April of 2018 in episode wow. 166. Uh, this was shortly after your, uh, your original um, I don't know your original, but the, uh, the Rolling Stones article that I read that I was like, man, I got to talk to this guy, but yeah. I, I want you to, I want you to plug what you've been working on because you continue to push the envelope with such great information. And I, and, and so people are like, well, shit, where do I start? Right. So please, please tell them one place where they could go. All right. So just to backtrack, we had episode 166 in April, 2018. I think we recorded another episode in Yes, May we did. 2021 or something like that. Yep, it was June in June of 2021. That's episode 324 and that one was called wow. uh, MDMA then mushrooms with Paul Austin. Okay, so that was and I feel like we talked a little bit more about like kind of systemic aspects there. We did like the first episode is more about microdosing. So this is this is even an opportunity for us to 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 bring some of those things home and even talk about mm -hmm. now like where psychedelics are at Absolutely. Know, Colorado just legalized psilocybin. We were just hanging out at a conference in Miami last month. So there's, there's, there's a lot happening. So I think in terms of like, you know, recently what's, let's say since the last episode came out, what are we working on? What's, what's sort of present for us? I would say first and foremost, you know, the, 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 the book that, that recently came out, I published a couple books on microdosing, but for this one, I really went all in. I hired a full team um, to really put together a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal book, self-published. Uh, that's the way that I've been preferring to do it. And it's called Mastering Microdosing, How to Use Subperceptual Psychedelics to Heal Trauma, Improve Performance, and Transform Your Life. And I mean, there's there's a lot of valuable content in there. I would love for the listeners to go check it out, to, to get the Kindle version or the paperback or whatever it is. Uh, but the, the, the core takeaway that I'll just sort of, or the nugget to really hold on to from this conversation is really looking at psychedelic use as a skill. And so that's the framing of mastering microdosing, right? How do we master this, this sort of meta skill of working with psychedelic substances to facilitate the healing and transformation uh, that we want to see in our lives? And so when I look at sort of that matrix of psychedelics as a skill, uh, the way that I think about it is every psychedelic is different. Right. So MDMA compared to psilocybin, compared to LSD, compared to ayahuasca, compared to 5-MeO-DMT, all of these are actually different compounds. They have different impacts. They have different effects. They have different use cases. And based on where you are at or based on where, you know, if, if there are any coaches or practitioners listening to this, based on where their client is at, then it's helpful to know what's appropriate for when. So I think the first element is, is uh, for psychedelic use as a skill is the type of medicine. The second element is the uh, the amount of the medicine. So a microdose of psilocybin is going to be very different than a high dose of psilocybin. 100 milligrams is very different from five grams 
of psilocybin and they each have different use cases, right? A microdose may be more appropriate for someone who's just brand new to psychedelics, who's sort of a little tepid, a little timid about going in, whereas a five gram dose of psilocybin might be good for someone who's sort of already waded their way in and really needs to have a breakthrough experience to sort of get out on the other side. And then the third element is frequency. So how often are we doing it, right? Um, you know, are we doing it with microdosing? Is it once a week? Is it twice a week? Is it three times a week? Is it four times a week, right? With a high dose, is it once a month, once every three months, once every six months, right? With 5-MeO-DMT, that might be once every three years, but with a high dose of psilocybin, that could be once a month, depending on where someone is at. And then contextualized within all of this in terms of that psychedelic use of scale, it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is what are the actual behaviors that are changing on a day-to-day basis? There's a lot of beauty in, in these psychedelic experiences. There's a lot of beauty in microdosing. It's a great uh, aid. It's a great catalyst, but it's not the thing itself. And oftentimes, especially for those who are new to psychedelics or hearing about how uh, potentially life-changing they can be, there's a lot of power that's given away to the 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 thing that is outside ourselves, the the medicine, the substance, the drug, whatever you call it. And I think the, the, the remembrance has to be that we ourselves are capable. We are incredibly capable of, of shifting and changing. And at the end of the day, it's it, the now what is, is about how we eat. It's about how we sleep. It's about how we move. It's about, you know, how we take care of our, our, our mental health, our emotional well-being. Um, it's all of the lifestyle practices that are not psychedelic, but that support a very healthy and psychedelic informed lifestyle. This could also be breath work. It could be yoga. It could be cold plunge. It could be saunas, right? There's so many practices that we can incorporate. And so really looking at how do we leverage psychedelic use as a skill to integrate a cornucopia of lifestyle practices that support true, true well-being. So that I would say that's like the main philosophy that I've been refining mm. over the last year and a half. And then how does that, how does that sort of frame of psychedelic use as a skill map on to what we call our model of transformation. So we've probably talked about this in, in, in the other two podcasts, but by and large, the focus in the psychedelic space um, is on the medical, clinical, therapeutic use of psychedelics. How is psilocybin great for depression? How is you know MDMA great for PTSD? How is ayahuasca good for alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the 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 greatest potential of these substances lies not in uh, healing indications, but in transforming our sense of self. Uh, and so as part of what we've been working on with third wave, what we've been working on, uh, with the book and what we've been, we also have a training program now for coaches and practitioners. It's really been, what is that model of transformation? Um, and how does the skill of psychedelics accelerate or bring us through the model of transformation? And so for that model of transformation, there's five pillars that we've landed on that support full transformation. Uh, the first pillar is awareness. You know, how do psychedelics help us become more aware? The second pillar is self-regulation. So once we become aware, how do we regulate through shadow? How do we regulate through challenge? How do we regulate through trauma? How do we continue to keep our nervous system in a regulated state? Uh, the third pillar is motivation. So once we become more aware, once we're self-regulated, what are we focused on? What do we wanna create? What do we wanna build in the external world? The fourth pillar is interpersonal. So once we've found our motivation and we figure out what it is that we want to build, then we're simply asking, well, who do we want to build it with? Right? Who do we want to create with? Who do we want to bond with and connect with to create something in the external world? And then the fifth pillar is the collective. So what is the greater collective asking for? What is the greater sort of cosmos and Gaia and, and collective consciousness asking for? What wants to move through? And how do we align the creation of what it is that we want to bring into the world with what it is that wants to move, move through us. So I think we may have talked about this in the last, the last, uh, the last podcast, but there's this, there's this concept called attractor points, A T T R A C T O O R. So attractor, like attract attractor points. And there are these attractor points in the future for, if, if we're thinking from a very futuristic perspective, there are these attractor points in the future that we know are inevitable, right? So, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, they knew the digitization of society was inevitable. Uh, so what did they do? They, they Their motivation was to create the personal computer. They teamed up with a bunch of people to do it, and they created something, a beautiful product that they knew uh, that they knew would be utilized and would grow and expand and blah, 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 blah. 
So I think the consideration then is in this model of transformation, what are some of these future attractor points? And I believe one of those future attractor points is decentralization, that the future is mycelial, that the future is decentralized, uh, that more and more individuals are going to have autonomy, that, that there will be less and less hierarchy uh, in many ways, and that psychedelics, mastering psychedelics as a skill and, um, and crea creating a, let's say, cultural context for psychedelic literacy, where it's, it's second nature to know how to microdose it's second nature to know what impact a journey dose could have that that will be incredibly beneficial to addressing a lot of the sort of meta crises that we currently live uh, mm. within and that we currently find ourselves faced with and that kind of final point and then I'll, I'll stop that one of the core i would say truths from psychedelics is this truth of interconnectedness that we are connected to everything around us right that we are not the sort of separate disparate being, but that energetically my well-being is dependent on my partner's well-being, which is dependent on, um, you know, the house's well-being, which is dependent on nature's well-being, which is dependent on the community's well-being, all of this, we live in a web of energy. And I think one of the biggest lies of the last 300 years has been that the, the, you know, that we are a separate, separate mm. self. And so if that is true, if we have this truth of interconnectedness that comes through on psychedelics, how does that then inform sort of the the new products, the new services, the new paradigms that 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 we want to create that align with that attractor point of decentralization or the mycelial mm. network. Today's episode is brought to you by BioPro Plus. I love this stuff. It has made a major change in my life, in my metabolism, in my mood, in my ability to put on lean muscle mass and feel as powerful as I want to feel. BioPro Plus is the faster, easier, and safer non-synthetic alternative to painful, expensive, and invasive anti-aging and hormone treatments. Before you do TRT, before you start taking a bunch of herbs that may not make you feel the way that you want to feel, you should try this. You can go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. You know, you know that a sponsor is a hit when people who have purchased it reach out to me and say, holy cow, Sean, I tried this and it's amazing. It's blowing my mind. It makes me better at everything that I do. I love having sponsors like this that really make a difference in people's lives. And this product is, it's absolutely incredible. It's growth factors and amino acids that will help you improve your hormones, become better at everything that you want to do. So go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. I, well, what comes to mind is this, this sort of um, response to reductionist, materialist, science-based, measurement-based sort of reality that, that we are that we are all participating in, you know, if, if, it, if, it, if it's, it's of no value unless it's measured and it's gotten us into some trouble. It's gotten us into some trouble in the way that we're treating the planet. It's gotten us into some trouble in the way that we're treating each other. Um, it's, it's, you know, shortchanging our existence in reality that, that we're sort of you know, emotional, like, how do you measure love? Right. Can, can you, can you reduce, can you reduce it down to something measurable? You can point to, you know, uh, some, some brain chemicals. You can, you can say oxytocin, but that obviously doesn't, that doesn't nail it. And by empowering people, informing people, educating people to learn for themselves how to use this in a skillful way, it is, empowering people to have more agency and to enjoy their life a little bit more. And, uh, and, and when you are enjoying yourself and your family, your stress goes down, you live longer. When you are enjoying the little things like a cup of tea or a walk in the park, maybe it's with you know, uh, 230 milligrams of psilocybin that, that en enhances that appreciation for the walk of the park. Cool. Good. Like all for it. Um, but it, it's, it's, it, this response to this sort of reductionism, I think is long overdue and, and 
the work that you're doing and so many other people, you know, watching you, watching the little clips and, and some of the conversations, I would love to be on a fly on the wall. I'm sure the content is coming, but you sitting down with Hamilton Morris or you sitting down with Paul Stamets um, and having these sorts of conversations and we're doubling like this stuff, it, it, it's, it's aching to come out and it's aching to, to nourish that part of us that doesn't have anything to do with measurement. It doesn't have anything to do with neurochemicals. It has everything to do with feeling and purpose and joy and happiness. Um, I want Aldous Huxley. Yeah. Kind of on a note on that, before we get into the, the next part, Aldous Huxley wrote the brave new, brave new world in 1938, which most people know. Or 1933, he wrote it. Um, but in the 40s, he became really interested in Vedantic philosophy, and he he published a series of essays called "The Divine Within." And he talks about how this sort of experience of gnosis is in is is antithetical to the onward march of the machine, mm. right? And so, when within industrialism, we've been so conditioned in this sort of reductionist lens that we literally perceive ourselves as machines now like a lot of the language we use is is how we as is how the human body is a machine and and um like spoiler alert it's not a machine it's a, <laughs> the brain is not a computer <laughs> yeah it's it's an organism it's, it's very different uh than that and 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 there was this phenomenal french philosopher jacques Ellul who wrote a book called the technological society where he went deep into this is how the onward march of the machine is killing uh, our culture. You know, it's killing our soul. It's killing uh, our feeling. It's killing our capacity to connect and be human. And so what psychedelics are doing is they're enabling a shift of the metaphysical perspective, right? Where they're really helping people to recognize that, let's say, panpsychism or even idealism, right? Panpsychism is that consciousness is emergent in everything is actually a fundamentally truer philosophy than reductionism. Mm -hmm. uh, they've actually done research on this as well, showing that people who have psychedelic experiences, the the number of people who shift from a reductionist lens into a panpsychic lens is, is pretty incredible. And of course, it's difficult though, because it is, it is the water that we swim in. You know, it's kind of like what David Foster Wallace talked about in the, in the in the speech that he gave at Kenyon in 2006. This is, we are fish, we are swimming in this water, uh, which is why many of us are so miserable. And yet what psychedelics do is they enable uh, an incredible sort of forthcoming of courage, which allows us to be bold enough to create a new paradigm that is rooted in a much more, a much truer metaphysical worldview. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, used, I used to be a big fan of Sam Harris and the way that he thinks. <laughs> you of, used to be a big fan of, of Sam Harris. I, I, used, I used to. I used to be a big fan of Sam Harris. <laughs> and and for a, you know, for a, you know, proud atheist to uh -huh. to give props to his own sort of you know, non-denominational spirituality and pointing specifically to MDMA as this awakening moment for him where he understood the interconnectedness of things, where he felt close to his friend, where he, you know, saw and felt things that he'd never seen or felt before, which, you know, allowed him to question his reality and question um, some of his, some of his positions on how he saw reality and what God was or wasn't. And, and, and if you ask anybody, if you ask anybody, you know, what are, what are some of the impressions that you had the first time that you tried MDMA that they will, they will include that they will include this interconnectedness and this awareness that all is not what it seems and it, and, and bucking against the onward march, right? It's like, oh, I can slow down. I can hug my friend, you know, I can lay down in a pasture, you know, that, that's the best stuff. The, 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 the hard part, right. Is, and we talked about this in our last conversation together was the balancing of the digital with the spiritual and with the, with the conscious and the, the sort of pitfalls and trappings of, I, I do have a phone on me at all times. Like it's, it's a, it's a part of me. It is, it is an extension of myself. And yet I'm still not going to get Neuralink because I think that's going a little too far. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in that, but my kids might be, you know, and, and how do I think about that 
how do I think about this balancing between, you know, consciousness expansion, responsible and informed psychedelic use for progress rather than, you know, um, TikTok videos where, you know, people are self-diagnosing psychoses and stuff like that. Like that, that ain't it. That, that, that's, I'm not excited by that. <laughs> that's not it. That's definitely not it. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious about the, the process of, of, of writing the book and considering sort of best practices for people when everyone is so individual and, their experiences are in a unique to them and with with for people who are maybe interested in psychedelics but scared shitless about losing control even even in, with microdoses or are recovering from addiction and they don't want to use a compound that's going to you know you know maybe ignite their their addictive tendencies and i have experienced this really really recently with with folks who have been sober for 20 years are interested in psychedelics, but they're like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to flip that switch back on where I'm chasing the dragon to, you know, two days later. And, and so I'm just sort of curious about how you, how you think about that. And in the, and in the creation of some of this content, like how, how do you, how do you manage that or think about that? So when it comes to best practices for microdosing this, even, I mean, it dovetails well with what we were just last talking about, because a lot of the a lot of the journey of landing on what's appropriate is is a process of intuition and listening. Um, it's helpful to have some initial frameworks because those create some level of scaffolding to work off of. So, for example, you know, we could talk about the Fadiman protocol. We could talk about the Stamets protocol. You know, microdose two times a week, uh, one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off. That's the Fadiman. Stamets is four days on, three days off. Right. So to have some, there are other protocols which is one day on, one day off. To have some initial protocol where for a set period of time, an individual can go ahead and try a microdose uh, within that scaffolding, I think can be really helpful. And it's a good way to sort of get get a, get up and off the, the ground and, and get things going. Um, part of what I've teach in some of the programs and we mentioned in the book then is, is part of this is also calibration, right? So mm -hmm. what is a microdose? I think that's a huge, that's a huge uh, question that a lot of people struggle with. You know, it's interesting when Jim Fadiman first came upon the idea of a microdose, he said it was subperceptible or subperceptual. Um, he has since then, since rescinded that definition because it doesn't necessarily accurately reflect uh, what a, what a microdose is. So, you know, when I was interviewing Paul Stamets, you know, last month, he, he, define microdosing as subintoxicating. Ah, which I thought was interesting because subintoxicating meaning that you can still drive a car, you can still navigate your everyday reality. Yeah, you might feel it a little bit. You might have a little bit you might have a little euphoria, your mood might be slightly enhanced, you might have some level of visual acuity. You 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 might be able to notice it, but it's just like when you have a glass of wine, you notice that you drank a glass of wine, it's not as if you're intoxicated and can't you know, drive a vehicle after a glass of wine. So I think that <clears throat> that's the best definition that I've heard so far. And I'm slightly embarrassed to say that because the subtitle of this book that I just published is how to use subperceptual psychedelics to heal trauma, improve performance and transform your life. With that being said, um, that calibration matters a lot because I think, you know, hundred micrograms of acid to me is going to be different than a hundred micro, or, sorry, 10, 10 micrograms of acid for me is going to be different than 10 micrograms of acid for you. Uh, you know, I, I may be more sensitive and I can feel it a bunch. Whereas you're like, you know, I really need 20 micrograms or 30 micrograms of acid to get there. And, and this is also where, um, you know, prior psychiatric, um, prior use of certain psychiatric medications can be predictive of someone's sensitivity. So if someone has a long mm. history of SSRI use, they've been on SSRIs for 30 years, uh, they might need, you know, 500 milligrams of psilocybin as a proper microdose. Hmm. Right. Whereas someone who has, you know, never touched any psychiatric medication might only need a hundred milligrams of psilocybin. So what matters in all of this is to start <clears throat> to practice, to do it right. You're not going to get any of these benefits without actually just sort of crossing the threshold and doing it. The upside of course, to microdosing is it's not as if you need to go on a full journey dose 
and total ego dis- dissolution and, and lack of control and all of that, you can actually sort of start to wade your way in. What we say is start low and go slow. So start at 100 milligrams of psilocybin, see what 200 milligrams of psilocybin feels like, see what 300 milligrams of psilocybin feels like, see what 500 milligrams of psilocybin feels like, right? See what a gram of psilocybin uh, feels like. There's a lot of like, you can, you can try it at all these levels and just notice and listen and observe and pay attention to, to what's happening, what's happening to your brain, what's happening to your body, what's happening to your emotional field, what's happening to the way you relate, what's happening to uh, the way you sleep, right? There are so many different ways to sort of track and measure about how is this impacting me? What is going on and how might I shift it and change it uh, based on what I'm observing? Because a lot of the psychedelic stuff is... Um, yeah, you can learn, you can read a book, you can listen to a podcast, but it's like 90% experiential. Yeah, it has to right? be. Like you have you have to do the thing. And if and if there's a concern or if there's a fear, because I want to get into a couple other parts of your questions because I think there's they're good. If there's a concern or a fear about letting go, then practice breath work, you know, do do a full breath work session, go do a float tank. Uh, maybe try ketamine first at a high dose before you do psilocybin, right? Because that process of letting go is one that can be easily learned. And what it often comes back to is how you anchor in the breath. Uh, the more sort of um, confident you feel in terms of your breath, the more recognition that you have that your breath is what keeps you centered. Then if things, if you take four grams of mushrooms and things start to get a little bit difficult or a little un- uncomfortable, then that remembrance that the breath can be your anchor is often what can bring you back to the present and allow the motion to be felt and to be let go of. Because oftentimes when there's a, a quote unquote challenging experiencing happen happening or a bad trip happening, whatever we want to call it with high doses of psychedelic, it's because there's an emotion or feeling that's being repressed. So as long as there's an allowance, a surrender for whatever needs to move through can move through then even if it's difficult, even if there's a ton of anger that needs to be let out, or even there's, if there's a ton of sadness that needs to be left out, uh, that, that allowance is what matters most. Um, so I think, and then when it comes to these different substances, right? Like particularly for those who have a background of addiction, there's a really, there's a phenomenal group uh, called PIR psychedelics. I think psychedelics in recovery which helps to contextualize a lot of this where you have uh, the people who started it were people who were, you know, formerly addicted to opiates or former alcoholics. And they didn't necessarily appreciate the very stringent and black and white sort of like can't do any drugs or can't have a drink ever again. Mm. Right. Um, Where they, they, a lot of these people feel like, okay, once I've healed that, and I've come to terms with it and I feel the things that need to be healed. Well, if I want to enjoy a glass of wine, I should be able to enjoy a glass of wine. Or if I want to you know, smoke a cigarette, I should be, able... and now this isn't true for some people. Some people know, like I can't cross that line. You can't cross that line. Um, but when it comes to psychedelics, then my perspective on that honestly would be um, um, unless there's a very specific intention to utilize psychedelics to help with, let's say uh, opiate withdrawal, so someone who, for example, has been addicted to opiates, they do Ibogaine and they want to microdose iboga after the Ibogaine experience. I could see that being feasible. But by and large, I would say for anyone who comes from a background of addiction to skip the microdosing and just go right for the high dose. Because hmm. the microdosing, the low dosing may have a tendency to be slightly more, uh, there, may, there may be a tendency to be slightly more dependent psychologically on a microdose because it is something that you're taking consistently. There's a clear noticeable effect that it, that it has on mood. It's not habit forming. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, there's no withdrawals if you stop or anything like that. Um, but there is a nice lift, a nice, a nice mood euphoric lift, oftentimes of that. So if that's a concern, you know, if you take five grams of mushrooms, you're really not going to want to do it that often, as, yeah. as as many people can tell you. So to go in the deep end, to explore that, to heal that, and to, then to have the intention: how can how can this high dose of psilocybin, or how can ayahuasca, how can it help me heal? um, the parts of myself that led to that addiction in the first place. Right. And to do that under the supervision of a trained therapist or guide, someone who knows that landscape and knows that lens, it can help, help walk you through it. I think is, is critically important. The last caveat on that, if someone has a background of addiction, I would say also do not do ketamine would be Mm -hmm. my, my, my personal advice because ketamine tends to be, it's more addictive than, than the classic psychedelic psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca. Um, so that would also be my perspective is I know ketamine is legal and uh, it, it interacts with 
uh, an opioid an, an opioid receptor in the brain. Uh, not in the same way that opioids do, of course, but it's slightly more addictive. So my lens on that is background of addiction. Check out this group, Psychedelics in Recovery. Maybe join it, chat with people there. And then if you're going to do a psychedelic, go in the deep end and heal the sort of attachment wounds that are underneath uh, the addiction. Hmm. Wow. That's really insightful. I, I had two two things that really jump out to me is the to skip the microdose and go for the the bigger dose if you that i I, it makes sense to me because if you are an addictive type and there's obviously there's there's reasons for why you why you became addicted to, to, to opiates or alcohol or whatever um and you get just a little whisper of it you just get a little bit of a taste for it you're gonna probably want a bit more and a bit more and a bit more frequent rather than that fully immersive experience of five gram dose where you are, you know, uh, you're, whether you like it or not, you're going to have to do some, some work. You're going to have to do some digging. You're going to have to think about things that you've been not thinking about. And you're, I think you're probably way less likely to, to try to be doing that each weekend. And I think the ketamine thing is important. You know, one thing that, that, that I was totally struck by at wonderland was just the the number of ketamine clinics and the the frequency of the conversation and the advocacy around it and obviously because it's legal and and it's effective for many many people but i know i know i know a fair number of folks where it it wasn't it wasn't very effective and and i know of separately from um from that sort of you know ketamine clinic experience i know some other folks that probably have a pretty unhealthy relationship with it and do are every weekend. And, and that's, and it's not even like party scene people. It's like, I uh, just, I just like, it and it feels good. So then it's, it's Friday and Saturday night for months. And then it's like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then it's kind of like Wednesday through Sunday night. And it's like, you know, you want to look at that, right? Like that's you, you, the relationship that you have with that substance, the same thing with anything, right? cannabis is cannabis too cannabis is probably the, the the biggest one like what's your relationship with it is it doing what you think it's doing uh because there's a pretty good chance that if you are um if if you are doing it three four times a week there's a pretty good chance that it's it's not a good relationship and you're probably going to want to find somebody that can help you navigate and reorient that relationship with it so i'm i'm really i'm really glad you said that Kind of debris, and the time is flying by here, Paul. But what, as always, as always, uh, what did you find? Let's just take Wonderland really, really briefly. What, okay. what did you, what did you learn that you didn't know before? It's an interesting question. Yeah, I've been in the space a while, seven years, seven and a half years. I've been going to conferences for six and a half years. Uh, I think first and foremost that you could host a psychedelic conference at a convention center. That was a, uh, it was an interesting, an interesting take on things. Second, 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 second to that is we've definitely entered the corporate trade show phase <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of psychedelics that there are a lot of companies who are interested in the space. Um, I would say kind of, you know, my lens at the conference itself was a bit tricky because I don't, you know, I, I I hosted a panel myself. Most of the time I was interviewing, I, I you know, we I have we have our own podcast with Third Wave. So I interviewed Rick Doblin and Paul Stamets, Hamilton Morris, Matthew Johnson, and then Suresh. So I was often busy and in podcasts. And then I taught a workshop myself and we had a party. So there was like a lot happening and a lot going on. I think more than anything, it sort of reified uh, the lens of, I really love, re regardless of the content, I love going to psychedelic conferences because I get to hang out and see a lot of people that I've known for a significant period of time, or I get to run into other people who maybe I've only met virtually or over zoom and, and get to like, I think you and I, yeah, 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 we had a man in person before right Wonderland. And, um, I think you got a haircut actually since yeah, I did. Yeah. I got cleaned since up. Wonderland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we get to hang out at the, uh, at the, at the party that, that last night. Um, and then, and then I think kind of in addition to that, the diversity of opinion now that is, that is now in the psychedelic space, you know, when I started going to conferences six years ago, it was a, I, I went to a Ibogaine conference in Mexico. Hmm. So it had its own flavor of, 
you know, Ibogaine practitioners, Ibogaine providers, people who had healed with Ibogaine, you know, it was very Ibogaine focused. Um, and then up until about 2018, 2019, there was a pretty common ethos across the psychedelic landscape, you know, and over the last few years, as more and more folks have gotten into it, that that ethos has been significantly diversified where the psychedelic space is really trying to hold everything at once mm. and be successful at it. Uh, so it's trying to hold the corporate trade show with the grassroots sort of, you know, activists with, um, you know, the ketamine healers, with the ayahuasca shamans, with the performance coaches, with, um, you know, the experiential immersive breath work and, and sound. So there's, there's, there's the, 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 the lens that the psychedelic space has is incredibly wide, probably the widest of any industry out there. Mm. at this point in time and still in its in its infancy it's still very early and what this conference did is it brought all of that together now it definitely leaned more on the corporate trade show side for sure but for example on sunday day three i roll up and i i got some hoppe that kicked my ass right in the middle mm. of the trade show from from chakruna right so there there, there was like I, I it was my all of the voices were represented um, there's a lot of diversity. There are a lot of different types of panels and talks and keynotes. They did a great job bringing in some really big speakers. Um, yeah. And then, of course, and it was in Miami. And, you know, Miami is great to visit. The food's phenomenal. Uh, we ended up throwing an epic party for the Microdosing Collective. So side note, Microdosing Collective, we're a 501c3 in California. The goal of the Microdosing Collective is to legalize psilocybin microdosing supplements for over-the-counter use. Um, and so we got a chance to host a great party through the microdosing collective and further amplify that. So, uh, it was a ton of fun. I was exhausted and beat by the end of it. Um, and it provided inspiration. We're probably going to host our own conference. We are going to host our own conference, uh, for third wave next year. Um, you know, Wonderland has really indexed into quantity over quality. They're really trying to just be the biggest possible and bring as many people together. Uh, which the space needs that we'll probably do the absolute opposite, which is mm. just have like a hundred to 150 people because part of what, you know, I've been sitting with at third wave is the importance of providers in ensuring that this third wave of psychedelics is successful. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and particularly providers who are not in a regulated clinical format mm -hmm. because there's less guardrails, there's less accountability uh, with that. And, and yet that's the way that the vast majority of people are going to work with providers in the psychedelic landscape is they're not going to pay tens of thousands of dollars and work with a psychiatrist or a therapist. They're going to find a coach on our platform who's in their city that they can send a note to and do a guided experience with in the woods, somewhere beautiful. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're really with third wave focused on how do we, how do we cultivate uh, a community of providers that are vetted, that are verified, that are ethical, and that are focused on the legalization of psychedelics. And um, so that conference is really going to be for clinicians, clinics, retreat centers, facilitators at retreats, therapists, coaches, psychiatrists, really like how, how do we like develop that as a nucleus? Because I think that's the biggest problem to be solved in the psychedelic space is how do people find ethical providers, especially yeah. for those who are brand new to this and really don't have any fucking clue what they're doing. Yeah. I, I was really struck by the diversity of opinion, <clears throat> you know, right. uh, at the conference uh, and you can imagine how enthusiastic of uh, the largest psychedelic conference, uh, what sort of, what sort of individual <laughs> enthusiasm people bring into it. Right. I feel really, really strongly about, you know, mushroom chocolates and, and, and how they work and, you know, combining them with, with ginseng and ginkgo and, and, and even from a scientific perspective, you know, people like having healthy disagreements either on stage on a panel or in this side room or in, in the VIP area, like that was super refreshing to me because what is going to the best ideas are going to bubble up from conversations where people don't see, they don't agree. Do you know, the best ideas are going to come out of spirited debate 
and advocacy. And that was that I was really, really, really impressed by that because, you know, for, for, for you, especially and me to a certain extent, it is still so early, like, you know, the, you know, the, the legalization that's happening in, in these States or decriminalization that's happening in some of these States is like, um, seems like it's taken forever, you know, for, for a guy like yourself, where it's like, man, I've been working on this for a thing for, you know, seven, eight years and thank goodness things are getting traction now, but for everybody else, it's still like not a real front of mind thing. They're surprised that, that it's happening. Right. Well, and even seven years in the, yeah, the, the realm of things is short, right? Like, like I think of like Stan Groff, who is probably 90 by now and has been working on this since the the 50s and 60s right so this is this is a generational project Mm -hmm. uh in many ways and i think that's the best way to contextualize it um you know we're we're so you back to the sort of machine the machinery of our reductionist lens we're so used to immediate you know i want this right away and it has to be right away um we forget that nature and, and life generally sometimes takes takes time and and so I often think about this generationally, like what what is this going to look like three generations from now, you know, so sixty to ninety years from now, and how are we building the foundation at this point in time to ensure that that vision of what it is that we're creating is, you know, all the things that we want it to be. Yeah, I totally I'm with you on that. You know, I, I having worked with the different communities in you know across the states and the West Coast, and you know. I think about my kids a lot. I think, uh, you know, we eat, um, we eat mushrooms at my house with dinner. You know, we talk about mushrooms at dinner. We talk about, um, you know, alternative medicines. We talk about CBD oil on the soles of my children's feet before they go to bed. You know, they see sage bundles and crystals and, and they are, especially my nine-year-olds beginning to become curious about like what cannabis is and how it is and what it is. And what I, you know, am very cognizant of is, you know, overusing the word medicine um, and, and putting it into that category. Cause it's not just medicine, right? It's, it's fun and interesting and beautiful. And it is a generational thing because, you know, um, the, you know, uh, the sons and daughters of, you know, think about like, you know, um, the Learys, right. That's a generational front of mind for them. Um, for myself, not so much, you know, more biohacking, personal optimization performance, but, you know, we talk, we talk about what, what, why dad went to Miami. What was that for? What was asking questions? Like what, what happens? What were people doing? You know, what were you talking about? Um, and to, to, to that point of like a generational topic, to be able to talk about it with nuance, to be able to position it in a way that there are lots of different things that that can improve people's lives. There are different compounds, there are different practices, and you have to find your way to it. You have to explore it. And at the same time, I'm not interested in my kids smoking weed, you know, like in high school, really, even. I mean, they will, of course. I didn't really as much, but you know, your prefrontal cortex isn't developed fully right till 25. And so there's going to be, there's going to be a, an, an open and honest conversation with all of the caveats and cautions that, that I think really does create like a responsible use, um, topic of conversation. And, and I, and I hope that, that not just you know, curanderos in Peru who have their sons and daughters in ceremony with them, you know, have that sort of generational exposure or even the friends that, that, that do this sorts of work in the States, especially with, with, with ayahuasca, where the kids know exactly what's going on and what's happening in there. But we got to continue to keep talking about it and talking about with nuance and grace so that it can continue to grow so that this third wave can be the last wave. And and, and I'm, I mean, I don't even know if you like me talking about it like that. I mean, third wave being the last wave, you know, I realized that maybe there's a fourth wave or Ah. it could be, there could be a fifth wave, but the best things tend to come in threes. Yeah, it's true. That's been my experience. And so hopefully, you know, and I'm a huge, I'm a huge student of history, right? So I, I always look at, you know, history helps us, helps to inform where we're going tomorrow. And it feels like, 
you know, the big experiment that all of this is, is we've never had a fully legal psychedelic landscape in a global, in a globalized world, right? The, the way that psychedelics have, have been used since time immemorial is really kind of more secretly and in private. And in, and, and, and it was like, don't talk about it. And it was mysterious and, you know, all of this. So this is also, it's a massive experiment and just like the internet was, and just like social media was, and, 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 and just like those, these are technology, Right. And so I think unlike the internet and unlike social media, this the it's it's not as um it's not as uh digestible by a mainstream audience, um, mm-hmm. which I think will keep it somewhat exclusive. Uh and that may be that may be necessary because of the the power that psychedelics hold. And it could be just to land this, it could be that microdosing really is the internet of psychedelics. You know, mm-hmm. microdosing is the thing that everyone is utilizing, uh, whereas, you know, only 10% of people, five to 10% of people are really going to the deep end with complete ego death and ego dissolution with ayahuasca or psilocybin or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's encouraging to me, Paul, because we're going to continue to have these conversations, you know, in these, in these platforms and, and it is an ongoing process and will continue to unfold. There will be issues, there will be problems, but there will also be um, advocacy and education um, because it has to happen. You know, we we need good ideas. We need all the good ideas we can get right now. And it's clearer and clearer that um, that psychedelics are are there for us to use responsibly and to appreciate and respect and. So, you know, whether it's another year or two before we do this again, um, thank you for, thank you for sharing your, your wisdom. Thank you for, uh, being here and showing up and for doing all the hard work that you do. So, um, peace be with you, my man. It's been a pleasure. Check out the new book, Mastering Microdosing. And if anyone uh, listening to this has questions or just wants to reach out, I'm on Instagram, Paul Austin 3W. Twitter, Paul Austin 3W and Sean, thanks for thanks for having me on for the three Pete. It uh you know, threes threes feel pretty good and, and this one was the best one yet. All right on man.